Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Buy a property, fix it up, pull all of my money out, or maybe a little bit less than all of it, sometimes more than all of it, and go buy the next house. And the more I do this, the better I get. The more practice and repetitions I get, the better investor I'll become. How great would it be to buy a piece of institutional quality income-producing commercial buildings? Well, now you can with Building Bits. It's not a REIT or a fund. Building Bits is a new platform for non-accredited investors where virtually anyone, regardless of income, can select a building lease to a major corporation with a guaranteed long-term lease. You can now invest in the same quality assets, which have previously only been available to institutions and wealthy individuals. Once you choose your building on BuildingBits.com, you can invest as little as $500 and receive your share of the rents while BuildingBits' team of real estate pros handles all the management aspects of the building. For the first time, the big corporations in America can actually start paying you. And when the building is sold in the future, the potential appreciation is redistributed to everyone so you don't just get the rental income, but also share in the upside. Best of all, since these securities are SEC qualified, they are freely tradable immediately. The $500 minimum with no upfront fees is available for a limited time. There are great properties available nationwide with major tenants, so don't wait. Go to buybits.us today and pick your property before they're all sold out of their current inventory. That's buybits.us. That's buy, B-U-I, bits, B-I-T-S, dot U-S. The SEC offering circular is available at buildingbits.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. And first off, I hope you're having a best ever weekend. And because today is Saturday, we got a situation for you. It's Situation Saturday. And the purpose of Situation Saturday is should you come across a particular situation like we're going to talk about today, well, you'll know how to handle it because our best ever guest will talk us through it. And today we're going to be talking about the Burr Rental Property Investment Strategy, and it's going to be made really simple, which happens to be the title of today's best ever guest book, David Green. How you doing, my friend? Good, Joe. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well, and welcome to the show. And a little bit about David and best ever listeners. You know David. You have listened to his episode before on this show. And also, he is uh, the co-host of the Bigger Pockets podcast. He's also a Keller Williams Rookie of the Year, or he has achieved that. And he is a real estate agent, obviously, and real estate investor. He started investing in 09 as a refresher, and he's got a portfolio of over 30 single-family homes and he's also got shares and apartments. He's got mortgage notes, note funds, etc. Based in San Fran. 
So first, David, how about you give a little bit of quick background of yourself, and then let's roll right into some lessons we can take away from the book that's come out recently. So I've been a police officer for about 10 years. I started buying rental properties with money I made working overtime. I was on your show number 806 and we kind of talked about ways that I go buy fixer upper properties, add value to them and then refinance them, which eventually became the first strategy, which is a book that I just wrote kind of detailing how other people can do that too. When I wrote my first book, Long Distance Real Estate Investing, about buying houses in other markets because California and the San Francisco Bay Area is just stupid expensive. You can't buy anything here. I started getting interviewed on other podcasts to talk about it. And then that eventually led to me getting to take over as a co-host of the Bigger Pockets podcast. So now I do the same thing as you. We teach people how to build wealth through real estate and get into this awesome thing that we figured out. And about two years ago, I stepped away from being a police officer. I went full-time into being a real estate agent as well as an investor just because I kind of got the bug for real estate, really liked it. Started doing good, sold a lot of houses. It turns out that really most real estate agents kind of suck for being honest. And it wasn't too hard to start doing well with that. So now I'm building a real estate team and I'm helping people to buy real estate. And I just love to talk about real estate all the time. Yeah, I have noticed a lot of agents are terrible. And what did you do to see, okay, here's what they don't do and here's what I'm going to do. What are some specific points? And I want to get into the burst stuff, but I'm curious about what you did that you saw that they weren't doing. I think that's such a good question because what I did was I looked at everything that frustrated me and I said, how can I solve that problem rather than just letting the frustration take over and make me a negative person? And I found that's actually become like a superpower of mine. When I get really frustrated with, man, I can't just get this piece of work in my life. I work really hard at solving that problem. Then I go teach other people what I did and people really like it. So my problem with real estate agents was I knew more about real estate than they did. I'm hiring them to help me either buy a house or sell a house or figure out how to solve this problem of how do I take a junk house and turn it into something nice. And they don't know what to do to help me. They really just know how to fill out forms and be friendly and nice. Most of them are trained in sales skills, but they're not really trained in real estate skills. So I was always frustrated by that. And when I got my license, I basically kind of branded myself as I'm okay to not be the nicest guy in the room. If I don't have the coolest looking Instagram or I don't have the most inspiring quotes all over my Facebook, that's all right. But I'm going to know what happens in a transaction. I'm going to have the best home inspectors. I'm going to get you accurate rehab bids. I'm going to help run numbers for you. I'm going to paint that picture as clear as I can for my clients, the same way that I would if I was the one buying or selling that house. And there's not many other people doing that because frankly, most real estate agents don't know real estate. It's kind of a tricky genre where you're in charge of finding your own business and then serving your own business. So what happens is agents focus way more on how to find business and how to serve it. And because there's not many people that were doing well, we did really good. So now one of my goals is to be the top agent in the San Francisco Bay Area and the Sacramento markets and give people an option when they want to buy or sell a house from someone who actually knows how real estate works as well. And the side benefit of that has been all the business skills that I've learned having to build a business, like I'm sure you've learned too. They really do help in the investing stuff as well. So now that you're an agent and you've got the process, you certain things that are identified now, you are the solution to those challenges or things that frustrated you, which is exactly what I do, by the way, whenever I'm writing a book, I read the books that are out there on my topic or similar topics. I read the reviews on Amazon and I read the negative ones and the positive ones and especially focus on the negative ones. I make sure I address the negative ones proactively in my book. 
It's, that's so genius, Joe. I mean, if more people did that, they just wouldn't suck at life. People are, people are giving you the answers to the test when they criticize you. They're telling you, here's what you got wrong. And when you're thin-skinned or you're afraid to hear that, then you avoid it. You only go to people that tell you what you want to hear. You just stay the same all the time. But if you can embrace that, okay, let me address where I did better. Eventually, you just won't make any mistakes and you'll be the best at whatever you do. So let's talk about your book, The Burr Rental Property Investment Strategy Made Simple. First off, for anyone who is from Pluto, what is Burr? And then roll right into how do you structure your book? All right. So Burr is an acronym that's buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. It's just the order of how I buy rental property. And the book, I basically split it into five parts. There's a buy part, a rehab part, a rent part, all the way through. And I say, this is how you become really good at each of these things. This is how you buy deals. This is how you rehab a house. This is how you analyze and rent it out. Here's how you refinance it. This is what you need to know about loans. And then the final chapter, the repeat, is how you build systems to do that for you over and over. And my philosophy is if you master the Burr strategy, you will then inherently master real estate investing because you've done every part of it that makes you a good investor. And the whole beauty of the Burr strategy is that you don't leave equity in a deal. You get your equity back out, which you can then go to use to buy another property. It's my belief that the only time in a real estate deal that we actually make money is when we buy that deal under market value or when we add value to it through the rehab process. That's the only two parts, right? And you need capital to do both of those things. You need capital to buy something and you need capital to fix something up. So if you're leaving all your capital in the deals that you're doing, it looks great on your spreadsheet, but you can't go buy new deals unless you get capital from somewhere else, right? So that's basically why the birth strategy works so good is I can go in there and I can buy a property, fix it up, pull all of my money out, or maybe a little bit less than all of it, sometimes more than all of it, and go buy the next house. And the more I do this, the better I get, the more practice and repetitions I get, the better investor I'll become. And if you take all the equity out or even more equity than you put into it initially, do you have a requirement that the property still needs to cash flow? Because obviously, if you take more out, then you might have some higher expenses on the debt side. That was my first concern when I started doing this at kind of a higher volume. And what I found is interest rates are so low and the price points of homes I'm buying at is so low, it very rarely affected my cash flow. I mean, it could be a difference of like 75 bucks a month to pull out a lot of money. So I stopped being as concerned about that as I was. I used to have a requirement that every house I bought needed a cash flow. And as my real estate agent business did better and some other businesses that I bought did better, the actual cash flow from a rental property became less important to me. And what I cared about more was the equity that I had in that deal, how much value I added to the home and what neighborhood it was in, like how well it was going to do over a long period of time. So I stopped looking at in the next six months, what is this house going to make me? And I started looking at 30 years from now, am I going to be glad I bought this house? So now I'm kind of playing a different game where I'm saying 30 years from now, God, if you look back at what home prices were 30 years ago, it's sickening. How many people do we know that wouldn't want to go back in time and buy all the real estate they could? I'm trying to operate from that perspective and I'm doing it in a way that's responsible so that I don't get so over leveraged that I literally can't afford my payments. That's where you're going to get in trouble. And let's talk about not getting over leveraged. What's your approach? So I personally believe that cash flow itself is nice, but it's not an offensive metric. Cash flow is not really designed to build you wealth. 
Equity is designed to build you wealth. Running a property efficiently and effectively will end up building you wealth. And holding it for a long period of time will build you wealth. Paying down that loan and letting it appreciate in time. So I am a bigger proponent of cash flow as a defensive metric. This is what you need so that you don't lose the property. And having a very healthy amount in reserves. I look at people that lost their homes in 2008 through 2013 when the market was kind of rough. All of them did not have enough reserves to weather that storm. They didn't know if it was going to cash flow or not. They literally didn't even understand what cash flow was when they bought their house. And they didn't have any money in reserves. That's a recipe for disaster. I make sure that I leave a ton of money in reserves so that any storm that hits me, I can weather. And all my properties, either cash flow or if they're losing 100 or 200 bucks a month, I don't really care if that goes on for a couple of years and then the rents increase and I'm in the positive again. So specifically, what's your reserve requirement for your properties? And then do you have a loan to value approach or guideline that you use? Well, most banks will only let me borrow 75% of the appraised value, which is what I go for. So you're buying a house in really bad shape and then you're pumping up its ARV, the after repair value, as high as you can get it because that's what you're going to be able to draw against when you go to take your loan out. But you're always going to be leaving 25% equity in that house just because the bank's going to make you it in the majority of the time. So what matters is, is the house in such a high price point that to pull out 75% of its value will now make it cash flow negatively. And most rental properties, they're not. This isn't a problem that comes up very often if you're buying in areas that are close to the 1% rule because they're going to cash flow so strong, they just cash flow a little bit less. I like to have six months of reserves for every house put aside in an account, as well as probably thirty dollars to $40,000 at any given time to cover unexpected capital expenditures. A hurricane blowing a tree onto one of my houses and the roof getting broken or something like that. And then the other thing I take into consideration is, let's say I was retired, Joe, those reserves would be even more than that. But I'm still working and I live way beneath my means and I have lots of money coming in. I don't need to be as conservative because I'm replacing money every single month that I'm sticking in an account. So I'm at a point in my life now where 100% of the money I make, I've invested back into real estate. So maybe I just take 10% of that that I would have invested and I put it back into my reserve account and I invest 90% of what I make. And when you say six months of reserves for every house... What are those reserves covering for the six months? So if you take your mortgage, your property tax, your insurance, your property management, your capital expenditures, your maintenance and your vacancy, which is on most of these houses that are $100,000 or $120,000, it's really not that much. Sounds like a lot. Well, maybe like (laughs) six or 700 bucks a month. Okay. Is, is like what I might have to spend. I'll just take that times six. So if it's 700 bucks a month, I'll put 4,200 bucks aside for each one that I do. But when you're first buying a house and then you rehab it, you're renting it out. I don't always go get a loan immediately and pull the money out. Sometimes I let it sit there for three or four months without a mortgage on it at all. So my cash flow is really high. That might mm-hmm. be 60 to 70% of my reserves that I built up just the house made for itself. I didn't even have to take my own capital. So it was only a little bit of money that I had of my own to put aside in that reserve account. And then boom, I'm into the next one. Okay. All right. So you delay the refi a little bit, build up the cash reserve. There's your cash reserve. Keep it in that account. And then you move on. Yeah. I let the real estate pay for itself. It it puts his own money aside in a reserve. Do you have separate bank accounts for each of the homes? Oh, brother. That is such a mess, honestly. (laughs) I've got like eight or nine different bank accounts all throughout the country. The problem is financing becomes very hard once you start to get a lot of homes. So you'll have a bank that will say, yeah, I'll let you refinance this one, but you have to do the loan through our bank. It's a portfolio loan, so we're not going to sell it. And you have to pay the mortgage from a checking account that you have with us. So now I have to open a checking account with them and I have the mortgage getting paid from them. 
have to move money from like a mother account into that account every month so that they can pay the mortgage. And I have to see if I can get my property manager to deposit my rental checks into that account for that house. And sometimes they won't because it's a small known bank in another area. So they put it into the mother account. It's like kind of a complicated spider web moving around. And that's one of the reasons that I would say to people who want to expand really big, single family is not a very efficient way if you're looking to expand a portfolio really big. You start running into problems like this that you don't have with other asset classes. So why would you do that versus buying 40 unit apartments? So the first reason is it's really hard to get into that space right now because everybody's there. Money is kind of cheap and there's a ton of people getting into multifamily investing. So for the guys that have been doing it and know what they're doing, they can do well. To try to break into that space brand new, you're already at a bit of a disadvantage and you don't know what you don't know. Even that though, I know that I could get into it and I could do it. I have a lot of buddies that are doing it, but the time it would take me to learn that asset class would literally lose me money that I could be making working on my real estate business or buying single family homes. So single family works for me because it takes very little time. I've got systems put in place that I talk about in the Burr book so that when a deal crosses my desk, I don't really do anything. I just forward it to the right people. They have criteria and standards that they're held to. They start that process. They end up putting the house under contract, managing the rehab, getting it rented out, finding a bank to refinance it. I don't really have to do anything. My overall goal is to continue buying houses under value, adding value to them, renting them out and refinance them, that money short term to go buy more. And every time I do that, I'm adding a good chunk of equity, like thirty to $50,000 to each house. At a certain point when I feel like the economy is reaching a peak, maybe like a 2005 or so, I'm going to sell them in 1031 that money into something that I feel is really solid that will kind of weather any storm. Maybe like a multifamily property in Indiana or Kansas or just one of those bomb shelter states that is rarely affected by the overall economy and leave it in a big multifamily property there until I see another crash. And then I'll be like that little gopher that comes out of its hole or the groundhog and looks around and is like, oh, it's safe and go out there and buy a bunch more single family again. Okay. I get that. I was going to play devil's advocate on why single versus multi. And again, whatever a listener wants to do, I don't care. I'm just wanting to play devil's advocate on two things you mentioned, and I'd like to hear your thoughts. So less competition. Usually that's what commercial real estate investors say about single family. (laughs) That's why they go into commercial real estate because – I would say there's certainly a lot more single-family home investors than commercial, but there are less commercial properties than single-family, so I guess it depends on your market. But as far as the other one, time to learn the asset class, basically you're talking about the opportunity cost, where the time you're learning, you could be closing on more deals, but I think you could buy a 30-unit and spend significantly less time on that one 30 unit transaction than 30 single family transactions. Um, Well, I think you're right about that. Factually speaking, you're accurate. I think that is the case. What I'm probably going to end up doing is adding equity to all of these properties that I'm buying individually and then converting that equity into the 30 unit or into the 50 unit. And that's where you sold me. Cause I was going to ask you, cause you said cash flow is kind of playing defense and you're using equity as your offensive strategy. And now I completely understand your approach because if you're not focused on cash flow, cash flow does pay for you to go on trips and do all the other things. Well, what's the end game here? And then you proactively answer my question. You're planning on taking these 30 or so properties and then when the time is right, packaging them up, selling, doing a 1031, and then getting something that is cash flowing heavy 
plus also has some scalability for you and your time. Yeah, and I should have qualified that. Cash flow is a defensive metric in the single family rental space. Like single family homes were not built with the intention of building cash flow for their owner. They were built with the intention of somebody living in it and raising a family or holding all their stuff. Multifamily properties were built with the intention of being run like a business. It's why we value them differently. Multifamily properties are their values based on their NOI. Single family properties are built based on a comparable sale. It's just the single family space is not a business oriented space. So you're not going to really get a lot of cash flow that way. At least you're going to have to work a lot harder to make it work. Whereas what you're doing in the multifamily space, it was designed for exactly what you're talking about. And that's a very fair point to make. If you want cash flow, that's a space you should be in. I've found this little hack where I can build equity really quick in this space and then convert it into the space later where the cash flow is bigger. And I think that when I get there, my cash flow will be a lot more than if I just started trying to do my first deal like a 30 or 40 unit property. Huge part of this is finding a property that you can buy that is undervalued or you can rehab it and then get some equity built into it. So how are you finding those properties? So the first thing I do is I target a house nobody wants. I look for distress. There's three kinds of distress. You've got market distress, which is the whole market's for sale, 2010. You've got property distress. That's where the house itself is in really bad shape and no one wants it. Or personal distress, which is where the person is in some kind of distress. So medical bills, you lost your job, foreclosure, bankruptcy, those kinds of things. It's easiest for me to target property distress Personal distress is kind of what wholesalers would be targeting or people who are out there beating the bushes looking for a good deal. I look for junk houses. I look for the house that somebody else started the rehab on and couldn't finish. Or in a market where to spend 50 grand on a rehab is like three years of their salary. That's a lot of money in some of these Southern states or Midwest states. But for someone with California money or New York money, that's not hard for us. We can go raise that pretty quickly from other people that need somewhere to put their capital. Once I find a house that I know is in bad shape, I look at what it would be worth when it was done and I work backwards. So we call that the ARV. Okay, if this house was fixed up like that, it would be worth 120000 And I figure out what it would cost to get us there. So let's say it would take $30,000 to fix it up. Well, I know that I want to be all in for 75% of the ARV when I'm finished. So I know that if it's going to be worth 120 and it's going to take 30 to fix it up, I can spend up to $60,000 to buy that house, which puts me all in for 90, which is 75% of the 120 that it'll be worth. And those are the houses I write offers on. I'm not the guy who writes 100 offers a week. I find that to be really time intensive, not very efficient. So I target houses that have been on the market for a long time. Then my agents are like, hey, I think we got a good shot. We can get this house. I go buy it. I have my rehab crew get out there. They fix it up. Once it's done, I talk to the bank. They get an appraisal. They let me borrow 75% of what it appraised for. I take my money out and I go buy the next one. Anything else real quick that you think we should talk about as it relates to the Burr approach that we haven't discussed already? Yeah, the biggest reason I think the Burr approach is the best approach to take is that I used to do it the old way, the traditional approach. I would save up 30 grand, I'd go buy a house, I'd spend 15 grand and fix it up. $45,000 later, I've managed a rental property and I got to work for another year to save up more money. It was extremely slow and I did not get very good at being a real estate investor because it's hard to get good at anything that you do once a year. Once I got into the Burr strategy, I could buy two houses a month instead of two houses a year. 
I started getting the wholesalers bringing deals to me first. I started getting contractors giving me better bids. I started going through contractors and finding the good ones a lot faster. I found better property managers. The whole thing just became a lot more efficient when I was doing something at a higher scale. And that's what I want people to understand is you're never going to get good at anything if you just do it very rarely. The people who are good at stuff just get thousands and thousands of repetitions in doing the same thing. So Burr enables you to do that and you can build your business around it as opposed to the traditional method really has a lot of natural things that will hold you back. How can the best ever listeners learn more about your book and what you're doing? You can get it on Amazon. It's Buy, Rehab, Rent, Refinance, Repeat, the Burr Rental Property Investment Strategy Made Simple. You can follow me on Bigger Pockets or your best bets prior to follow me on Instagram. I'm davidgreen24. That's the easiest way to get a hold of me. Cashflow is a defensive mechanism in the single family space. Perhaps that is mind-blowing for some people. And I hadn't heard it talked about that way. So perhaps it blew my mind as well, but it makes a lot of sense, at least for my own portfolio of my three single family homes that I am looking to sell right now because there's 350K in equity in total in them and I make about $300 a month from yeah. those. And Joe, I, I hear this all the time. I looked at mine and, and I saw the same thing. If you looked at your ROI, it's not bad, but if you looked at the return on your equity, you're like, man, I'm making like 1% on my yeah. equity on these deals. But what happened is now you got 350,000, you can go put into a, an asset class that does make cash flow. And you'll make so much more money with that 350 than if you had tried to just buy the multifamily place right away and had to save up that $350,000 to do it. True. It's a great point. It's very true. Yeah. First house, I had $20,000. I mean, that would be challenging to buy a, a, a multifamily property for 20K. And then, you know, <laughs> That's what's awesome that about real estate investing is we've got all these different strategies and mechanisms and synergy that we can kind of combine together to make this really cool finished product, like this Voltron of wealth building when you add it all up. And thank you for using the word Voltron. That's the one I'll have to look up afterwards. Thanks for being on the show. Hope you have the best ever weekend and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Joe. I know some of you out there are just starting your fix and flip journey. Before you do, let me tell you about an opportunity where your money works for you instead of you working for it. Building Bits is offering anyone, and I mean anyone, the opportunity to invest in commercial real estate and receive the dividends and value appreciation from the sale. Here's how it works. First, you choose a building and invest. Second, once the building is acquired, you start to receive potential quarterly dividends. Third, once the building sells, you get any of the appreciated value from it. See, money working for you, not you working for the money. Start today at buybits.us forward slash flip. The offering circular is available at buildingbits.com.